You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 60 of the Rotary Wing Show. Welcome back. And if you've just found the podcast, then that is awesome. I really hope you can take away some ideas and tips from today's episode that will make you a safer helicopter professional. To that end, today you will hear from Randy Maines about some crew resource management ideas that Randy calls his 20 CRM diamonds. Before we get to the crew resource management discussion though, Randy and I talk about a bunch of the stories from his career, and I certainly walked away with the impression that you know, we could make a, quite a few episodes just on those stories alone. Those stories also help to you know, set the scene and give you some context when we actually hit the, the CRM discussion. Some additional background on Randy, and this is a, you know, a very rough summary that I've uh, pulled together. Randy runs helicopter-specific crew resource management instructor courses in the US, he also got his start in the military with over you know, 1,000 hours flying Hueys in Vietnam. He's flown mustering ops in Australia. He was a instructor trainer with Bell in Iran. Was involved in the early days of emergency medical flight operations in Texas before being an EMS chief pilot in San Diego. Randy spent 13 years in Oman flying for the police force in the Sultan of Oman. Uh, then he moved into a ATPL check and training position in, in Abu Dhabi. He's a regular speaker at medical conferences, a HIA Heli Expo, author of several books, and is a regular contributor to Rotocraft Pro magazine. So a, a very busy guy. I'm sitting here in Brisbane recording today. It's blowing 30, 35 knots outside. There is an inter out for a broken at 1,000 and a three kilometer visibility. So I'm picturing our local EMS crews sitting around drinking coffee, which is you know, generally what I think EMS pilots and air crew do. And given Randy spent some time flying in Papua New Guinea and you know lots and lots of time and hours as an EMS pilot, I started out by asking him if he is a, a coffee expert. I like coffee, um, maybe two cups. I, I have a, a real sort of a, a um, procedure that I do in the morning. That uh, My wife and I get up have a cup of coffee. I make her tea. She's British. She's English. We met in Oman. So I get her tea for her and uh, we watch the news and then she has another cup and I have another cup of coffee and that's it. So no, usually no more than two cups of coffee. Do you cover that in your CRM courses in terms of, you know, the human body and, and drug use and things like that? Yeah, we talk about, uh, about uh, drugs and um, you know, the effect on the body and stress management and sleep deprivation and stuff. Uh, it's all basically the human factors that can um, have a, have a um, you know, a, a problem with your making the right decision. And so, um, yeah, uh, we, talk, we do talk about that. In fact, the, uh, the, um, yeah, we've got about 14 different modules that we talk about, uh, and it's all basically the human factors that can get you in trouble. 
I mean, and, and stress and tiredness and, and and caffeine use and drug use and all that stuff is uh, part and parcel of it. And I'm being very tongue in cheek when I ask this, but you know, when you go and visit a EMS organization, can you uh, judge them by the, the the quality of their their coffee machines for the pilots? <laughs> I don't know. Some some of it's uh, like jet fuel. You know, <laughs> it's been in there for a while. And but I never really was that much of a coffee drinker when I was an EMS pilot because. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just never was. I, I know a lot of my, my, my wife's a nurse. She was a nurse in, um, in casualty in, in London. And she said it was just coffee and cigarettes. Luckily she doesn't smoke now, but it was just, you know, keeping that buzz going for the, you know, the, the bus load of hemophiliacs that crashed and were going to be rolled through the door, you know, so they'd be all wired up to take the, take the challenge. All right, well, let's jump straight from that back to, to Vietnam and, and your experience there. So I was going to mm-hmm. quickly ask, so obviously you had a DFC and then 27 air medals and a bronze star, but can you just walk us mm-hmm. through an air medal? What sort of, uh, what were air medals, uh, I guess, well, awarded for? An air medal is when you've flown um, 25 missions in combat zone. Okay, it's either so, 25 missions or 25 hours. I'm not sure. I don't think it's 25 hours because I got over 1,000 combat hours when I was over there. So it would have amounted to more air medals than that. So I never really kept count of it. It was just, you know, the awards and decorations officers kept count of all that stuff. But I think it was 25 missions in a combat zone is when you get a air medal. Okay. So 27 of those, that's just 27 times 25. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You've got a, a great story about the about getting the Distinguished Flying Cross, if you're happy to talk about that. But uh, before we do that, can you talk about the, the sky cranes dropping the bombs and actually making the LZs in the in the jungle? Oh yeah, um, uh, many times the sky cranes would drop a 500 pound bomb in the in the jungle, you know, weeks before, and um, and then uh, that would make a landing zone. And as you can imagine, it would be pretty gnarly, um, you know, with stumps sticking up many times, and it was pretty tough. You'd have to come to a, a hover and let the guys jump out. Uh, you wouldn't be too high, but you t- you you wouldn't be able to land because there's there's so much debris in the in, in the landing zone itself. But yeah, that's what they used to do. But not all the time, but that's how they'd make some of the landing zones we'd go into. And how many flight hours did you have when you turned up in country in Vietnam? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, two hundred and ten hours. Uh, we had um, we had pre-solo, solo, solo, and then the primary phase, which you, after you learn how to fly the helicopter, you do confined areas and pinnacle landings and, you know, doing the high recon, low recon and, and landing and then taking off. Um, and then after 60 hours, we went from, um, at, at, at that time, we went from Fort Walters, Texas, which is about 50 miles west of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. And it was a huge training base for the U.S. Army. And then from there, we went to um, Fort Rucker, Alabama, where we had 50 hours of instrument training and then 50 hours in the Huey uh, for the transition to the Huey and then tactics phase. So you, you came out with um, 210 hours. And then we had we also, in the middle of that, we had 50 hours of instrument time. We called it tactical instrument ticket. Um, it was everything but an ILS, but we used to joke about it, saying that... Uh, uh, you had a, a, your ticket, and um, if you ever contemplated going flying, uh, there was a hole punched in the right-hand corner of it, and you held it up to the sky. And if you didn't see blue sky, you didn't take off. <laughs> right, right. 
Actually, there wasn't really a hole in there, but we used to, it was like bayonet training. We thought that they trained you just enough to get you killed, but actually it did save my life on, on a couple occasions, inadvertently going into the clouds and, and being able to uh, get out of it, doing what's called a ground controlled approach where they actually talk you down, looking at a radar screen for the, um, putting you on a center line of the runway and the, the glide slope, and you actually talk down to about 200 feet, I think it was. Okay, wow. All right. That's, uh, yeah, definitely something I've never done, uh, that one. I've heard people talk about it and been in a control mm. tower where they demoed the, the scopes, where they, you know, the, the control mm. would look at the scopes and how to do it. Uh, but it's not... Mm-hmm. It's not as uh, computer game ish as you kind of expect these yet. That these scopes were still the green ones with the, you know, it wasn't LCD screens or anything. They were sort of like a no, not at all. You just screen. No, they would get you. um, We didn't have transponders, you know, to identify our blip on the radar screen because that was a a weight issue, and we didn't, we didn't, we didn't use it. Um, So. Uh, they would tell us to turn a certain heading that, to try to identify us. And once they identified us, then they would talk us down. They would guide us in, you know, take us out far enough to, and then descend us and then uh, and then have you turn inbound and then keep you. They had two radar scopes, one for the center line of the runway and one for the, the uh, glide slope, which was about three degrees. All right, Randy, can you talk about the, the mission that you were on then when you got awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I tell the story usually in, in most of my classes and courses because it's it's the it's actually the very definition of good crew resource management, which is the use of all available resources to affect a, a safe and successful operation. And uh it usually takes me ten minutes to tell the story, so I'll give you the short shorthand uh version. And what it was is we were two uh, UH-1 helicopters, the, uh, the the Bell 205, and we were going to insert um, some recon team members. And uh, I was flying with the Army, but they didn't have a small enough helicopter to get in some of the small landing zones. Their smallest helicopter was the CH-46. That's uh, like the mini version of the Chinook. And um, so we were going to, I had four recon team members on my aircraft, and War Officer Bill Neubauer had four recon team members on his aircraft. And I was the first one in to the landing zone. It was a hover hole. It was a, about a 100-foot descent into the jungle. And it was one of those with a bomb, bomb, bombed out uh, landing zone from a sky crane. But there were areas where he could land, actually land where the, the tree stumps weren't so uh, prolific. So anyway, uh, I descended into the landing zone. I told my gunner and crew chief, we had two M60 gun machine guns on board, one on each side in the well seat. We had a gunner and crew chief. And they, I told them to start firing it to keep the enemy's head down if the enemy were, in, in fact, there. And then landed, the guys got out, and then uh, gunner and crew chief said, they're, they're clear, sir, you can come up. And so I came straight up and uh, at 100 feet cleared the, the trees and uh, nose down, accelerated. 60 knots and we climbed to 1500 feet which is the altitude where uh, you can avoid small arms fire as soon as i hit 1500 feet i heard on the fm radio the proximate radio i heard receiving fire receiving fire and uh, that was bill he was uh, on the radio and i i threw my helicopter into a um to turn 90 degrees so i could see what was going on and his helicopter was surrounded with tracer rounds green tracer rounds he was being shot at by the enemy 
So um, I said, you okay, Bill, and he, on the radio? And he said, yeah, okay, but it's hotter than the hornet's nest down there, and, and the enemy has your men pinned down. So I briefed Bill to, to uh, tell him we were going to go in and pick him up. You know, and the way I looked at it, that uh, I'd put him in there, so it was my job to go pick him up. I didn't even give it a second thought. So I briefed Bill to to tell the gunships to do it. We had two Echo model Marine gunships with 2.75-inch rockets, and we had two F-4 Phantom jets at, at 20,000 feet uh, just in case. They were loaded with napalm. So um, I briefed the gunner and crew chief to open fire when we came over the tree line. And um, so I set up a, a, a low approach uh, and then came over the tree line. I could see the four uh, recon team members in the cardinal points of the compass lying on their stomachs, firing into the tree line. There was a dead enemy soldier in the middle of the um, landing zone that they'd uh, killed. And so my gun and crew chief started firing and, and I sat down probably about 30 yards away or 30 meters away from where the um, recon team members were. And the gunships uh, were on either side of us uh, shooting their rockets to keep the enemy's head down. You know, this boom, boom, from either side of the helicopter and uh, landed. And the two recon team members got up and uh, threw themselves on the floor of my helicopter. Meanwhile, my gunner and crew chief are firing their machine guns. And then the other two recon team members got up and about halfway the helicopter, one of them grabs his uh, leg. He'd been shot in a, fem- uh, in a femur. And uh, his buddy grabs him by the scruff of the neck, still firing. And, um, and, and they both got on my helicopter. Gunner and crew chief hollered that we're, we're loaded, sir, we can come up. So I started pulling in uh, collected pitch to, to climb. It was a, just a, it was a maelstrom of just everybody firing. And you could smell that gunpowder and the, gun, the gunships were doing their thing, firing the, it was just a, right in the middle of a maelstrom. Uh, so anyway, at about 40, 45, 50 feet, I could tell I might be too heavy because I, I had refueled in Quang Tree before the mission because I didn't think I was going to have to go in and pick anybody up. You know, and of course, dropping somebody off is, is no problem with power. So we get about 70, 75 feet and I stop. I can't pull any more collective. Otherwise we start, I droop the rotor. All the engine instruments are in the red line and, and we're just we're just hovering there. My gunner and crew chief are firing. The guys, the recon team members in the back are firing. The gunships are doing their daisy chain, uh, firing the uh, rockets on the perimeter. And um, we're just hovering. I mean, I, 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 I cannot climb one more foot because we, we're, we've maxed out on power. I tried to pull a little bit more collective pitch, and uh, we started to droop the rotor, and I could hear the whoop, 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 the low RPM audio on my headset, in my, um, in my helmet. And uh, so we're just hovering like a tin duck in a shooting gallery. And um, now the enemy must have known that there's something was wrong because so we were just, you know, we we're just too long trying to get out of there. And I looked through the chin bubble through, uh, in between my pedals. There's a plexiglass window there, and I could see an enemy soldier run out. And I'm looking down the, I'm looking down the barrel of an AK-47. He's about ready to fire, but luckily one of the guys in the back saw him and he pulled the pin on a grenade, threw his grenade down there, and the guy blew him up and killed him. So, but we're just hovering there, and everything started to slow down, and I started to get tunnel vision. I mean, I was only 22 years old at the time. I said, "This is how I'm going to die." You know, like a tin duck in a shooting gallery. I've been country about seven months, and I figured that 
unless any, anything went wrong, I was going to make my, my, my one year tour of duty and go home. But this didn't look good. Um, I see a, sort of a silver flash on my right side, my left side, and it's the F4s. I'm doing a uh, um, a run on the uh, uh, perimeter of both sides of the landing zone. They drop their uh, their sortie, sortie of napalm, and there's just a wall of heat and light on both sides of my helicopter, sort of a wolf, wolf, you know, just surrounded by heat and light. I could feel the heat of it and the flash, the light of it. And but we're just hovering there. I can't, I can't. I can't climb one more foot. Then a, a, a bullet fired from the chain line below from one of the enemy uh, soldiers goes through the greenhouse over my co-pilot's head and just shatters it. And he he, he um, threw his head down, covered his head, and he looked at me with a sheer terror in his eyes. And uh, so I'm racking my brain trying to think, how am I going to get out of this? And then I remembered something one of the old guys told me. Um, before he left Vietnam, you know, one of the old guys, he was probably about 23 when he left. He said, if you're ever in a situation like this, Randy, put in right pedal and it takes pitch from the tail rotor blades. It gives you a little bit more shaft horsepower to your main rotor. He said, you'll, you'll, you'll turn, you know, you spin, but you might, uh, just get that extra altitude to get you out of a jam. So I didn't have any other options. So I put in full right pedal and we, we did a right 360. And as we did, we, we, we climbed that extra 25 feet so I could um, dive down the, the mountain slope to safety. And then we uh, flew about another 12 minutes to the 22nd Surgical Hospital in Fubai and dropped off the, uh, the soldier who had been shot. And uh, that's when I realized that the helicopter could save lives in the battlefield because of the expediency of getting somebody to a, a hospital when they'd been shot. The doctor said that it the bullet had nicked his femoral artery and uh, he, he probably would have died if, if we didn't get him there in time. So for that flight, I was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Yeah, Randy, that's an amazing story. So <laughs> thank mm. you for, for sharing it like that. And, and yeah, I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. How long do you think you were probably in the, in the hover at the top of the, in the, in the trees? I'd say about six or eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I, you know how... I don't know. I have no idea. It, it it probably wasn't that long, but it was long enough to have all that stuff happen and just think, you know, I'm just, how am I going to get out of it? So it, you know how those, what, those times sort of stand still. Maybe you've had a situation where time just slowed down and stand still, uh, until you could get out of the situation. And did you ever have to use the, the right pedal trick any other time in your career? I have in like in um, like carrying a heavy load, you know, like a sling load or something like that. I've just let the, without putting in left pedal, which actually puts pitch in the tail rotor blades and, and, you, and, uh, you know, when you're, when you're marginal on power, I just let the nose drift a little bit to the right, a little bit as I accelerate through transitional lift. And that, that's helped a couple of times, but I've never had to do the full 360 bit. That, that was just, you know, I didn't have any other choice, any other ideas. All right, jumping ahead then. So you head back to the US and from what I understand, you know, the market is flooded. You've got all these pilots who have been in Vietnam mm. and now still trying to find flying jobs back in the US. So mm-hmm. you have a, a night on the uh, on the beer and uh, Forex, I think it was, you mentioned one of the stories, <laughs> and you end up in Australia doing mustering. Had you done any cattle work before that? No, never. And what it was is that my good friend Peter Underhill, who I've flown with in Vietnam, uh 
after after his tour in Vietnam, he went over to Australia. He, he immigrated over there. And so I was back in the States. I Because I couldn't find a flying job, I went back to college. I was going to get a degree in aviation business from San Jose State. And while I was in between semesters, Peter just ended up on my front doorstep and he held two cases of Australian Forex beer. I'd never seen it before. And, and so he said, mate, if you want to fly helicopters, come to Australia. There's heaps of flying jobs over there. Um, with Peter's help, he 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 um, uh, wrote wrote a letter on his company letterhead once he got back to Darwin and uh, to, to offer me a job, even though I wasn't going to get a job. Uh, I needed that letter to show the American embassy, or I should say the Australian embassy, to show that I had a job to get to Australia, even though I didn't really have a job, but it just came me over there. So we got a permanent residency visa for it. And, uh, and then three weeks later, I was flying, um, uh, you know, herding cattle. Was it? I've never done it before. Was it Bell 47s? What, what were you flying? Yeah, there was a guy named Mike Ray uh, who actually, I mean, it's, it, it's a circuitous way that it happened because I, I was staying at the Bankstown Aero Club and studying for the exam because the, the um, ECA fellow, uh, you know, the guy, the licensing fellow, the equivalent of our FAA, you call it CASA now, CASA, but it was a different different acronym there. And uh, he said, unfortunately, your countrymen have a hard time passing the exam. And I said, okay, well, when can I retake it? <laughs> In other words, like, give it a go, probably fail it, and then and then retake it. But actually, I ended up passing it on the first time. But... But um, a fellow named Keith Angel, who is Peter Underhill's friend, he was going to buy a Hughes 300 and, and go after the Northern Territory to try to find uh, work at the different cattle ranches. So he arranged for me to get my mustering endorsement with a fellow named Mike Ray in a Bell uh, 13, Bell 47. And Mike Ray at that time was a, a well-known mustering pilot. He's since um, he's, he died. I think he had a, I can't remember how he died, but he had some some sort of disease. And uh, anyway, so I got my mustering endorsement and then uh, I went with Keith Angel and we went all over the different cattle ranches in the Northern Territory until I ended up at MacArthur River Station uh, near Boralula. And then I was the mustering pilot and their fixed wing pilot delivering meat to Aboriginal settlements after I'd mustered the day before. It must have been an eye opener, like going from the US to some pretty remote places in the Northern Territory. Like, what did you think those yeah, first couple amazing. of days? It was amazing. No, I, I loved it. I mean, when when I picked up the new aircraft for for Keith Angel, I picked it up in Sydney, and uh, and then flew it up the coast to Brisbane, where he, he was living in uh, Southport near Surfers Paradise. I, I mean, I'm a surfer from California. I was a competition surfer before I joined in the the um, army. And uh, so I flew low level up the coast with a map and was marking potential surfing spots <laughs> as I was going up to uh, Southport and then landed in Keith's backyard. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we, we struck off for the Northern Territory. And it was great. It was just so free. You know, I mean, we landed gas stations, you know, to get fuel <laughs> yeah. out of Mount Isa or going to Mount Isa. It was it was it was just great adventure. Yeah, there's a lot of country out there, like from Brisbane up to Mount Isa and the Mount Isa up to Darwin. There's sort of uh, yeah, just big stretches where there's nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's like, or that's what it was like then, anyway. 
All right. And what I might do is with the, the show notes and they go up on the blog for this, I'll include a couple of videos where you share some of more of your history because uh, you obviously end up in Iran uh, as an instructor trainer mm. uh, teaching there with Bell Helicopters and then you head back to the US yep. and that's where you start doing a lot of the, the, the EMS work. So there's a couple of things you mentioned yeah. uh, where you're back. I think it's in Houston, Texas, where you're setting up one of the, you know, one of the very early air ambulance roles there. But you talk mm. about uh, losing the, the cockpit to the customer. So I was going to see if you could just sort of oh, yeah. talk a bit about those early days of, uh, you know, setting yeah, up EMS. Yeah, it was at Herman Hunt. Herman Hospital in Houston was the second hospital-based uh, uh, air medical program in America. They, they were there in 19, August 1976. And I got there in January 79 after got it, getting kicked out of Iran during the revolution. All the Americans were kicked out of there. I got the last commercial charter out of the country, and then I didn't have a job. So my friend who was flying it in, um, in Herman uh, called me up. I'd been in in, back in the States for about an hour, and he said, how'd you like to do this new thing called helicopter EMS? And I said, what's EMS? And he told me it's like an air ambulance, and he was so excited. I, it was His enthusiasm was, it, it, I couldn't help but not want to do it. It was just contagious. And so the helicopter, what 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 the way that worked is that the hospital, it, it's like they would uh, release, like leasing a rental car you know, with its own driver and all maintenance and everything. So that's, that's what they did through Rocky Mountain Helicopters. They leased the helicopter and uh, they had a monthly fee that they would pay and there was a mechanic and, and, and pilots. And they so badly wanted this concept to work that the, uh, our company management managers would kowtow to the, to the customer if, to say, telling us that we had to take off no matter what, even if it was almost zero, zero to show that we were giving the old college try. And then, you know, if we had to just do a, a quick turn and come back to the hospital and say, sorry, we can't make it, even though we knew we couldn't make it. So our, rather than our company backing us up and telling the hospital, you know, just keep your nose out of the cockpit because these are professionals, they know what they're doing. They were kowtowing to the customers to try to please them in any way they could, putting us at risk. And you talk about the, the duty, like you said, doing like 72 hour shifts and things like that, and that the yeah. FAA sort of turned a blind eye to it. So, no, they didn't know how to treat us. The FAA was, was, um, what was not our, they were not our advocate because they had no idea how to treat us. There's, there's something in the regulations that says if it's an emergency, you can go and then you can talk about it later. And every flight was an emergency. So they just turned a blind eye. They didn't know how to treat it. It's like the drone issue now, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with drones now. I mean, same thing with helicopter EMS. They just weren't used to it. So we were working uh, 72 hours at the hospital straight. At the end of three days, we I drive. I was living in Galveston at the time, which is about an hour drive um, south on the coast. And I, I was just my my first day off. I was just like jet lagged. We all were, but um, we had one fellow, uh, a pilot that was so tired, he turned off his radio and his beeper. That's how we were contacted. Then we didn't have cell phones or anything. And he turned off his radio and beeper. He was well within his legal right. And he said, "I'm too tired. I'm going to bed." And the hospital called Rocky Mountain and said, we have an uncooperative pilot here. And that kid was fired before the sun came up the next day. Yeah, that's pretty hard. he was well within his right. Well within uh, his right. Very tough working condition, that one. Yeah. 
so from there I went to San Diego and then we went to two pilots and um, we were working 48 hour shifts. Uh, All right. And I know there's a heap more there we could talk about. I'll just pull out a couple more stories. How do you start an, an alouette with a, a paperclip? Was the, was the key missing and you had like a paperclip in where the key would normally go? No. You- there's a, it, the alouette starts, it's automatic. You just hit the switch and you just watch these lights come on to show, you know, what's happening, you know, where the fuel is being introduced now. And there's a, a, a box in the back by the engine where all the, all the, it all happens, like the electronics. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, it used to be a way that it, sometimes the starter solenoid on your car wouldn't work. And so you can stick a, stick a, um, a long screwdriver between the two terminals and you could short it out and make your starter start. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, it was a similar thing like that. And, uh, and so you would take a paper clip you go back there to that, uh, to that starting box, which is an electrical box. And then you just short across these two terminals and it would start it. Fair enough. And you did this in a, in a stadium full of uh, thousands of people. Well, I was hoping I didn't have to, but I, I did have to start it like that once. But when, I mean, I, I had the very, a great honor of uh, being awarded the first golden hour award that they, they give today. They still give it today for people who have been significant in forwarding the air medical concept in America. And I, I was awarded the very first one. So one of the things that happened in San Diego, I mean, I was flown to Washington to receive the, it's a, it's like a, I don't know about a 16 inch high hourglass. And it says golden hour on it and my name. And at that point it was 1982. And I was awarded it by the fellow that actually coined the term golden hour. His name was Dr. Adam Cowley from the uh, shock trauma Institute in Maryland. So he presented it to me in Washington. And one of the things that happened back in San Diego is they, they, uh, the PR people at the hospital arranged for me to land in the middle of Padre baseball stadium uh, in front of 50,000 fans in center field and, and run up to home plate where they had a microphone on a stand. And I was going to meet uh, Leon Williams, who was the county supervisor then. And he was going to say a few words and then sort of re-give me the Golden Hour Award. I was going to say a couple of words and then run back to my helicopter. And then when I ran back to my helicopter to start it, I just prayed to God that the, the thing would start and I wouldn't have to you know, get up on it. <laughs> With the paperclip, and but thank God it did start, and then I could take off, and so I had a pretty good exit. But I really thought that I was going to, you know, sort of a, no, this is not going to be good. <laughs> but it, it worked out well. All right, the Bell 214ST, and again, you know, I'd, I'd never seen one of these again until a couple of years ago, and it, and it looks like someone's tried to take a Huey and stretch it and turn it into a Blackhawk, like it's a, uh, like a stretched twin-engine Huey. Uh, so, you know, there can't be too many of them around and they feel unique. But can you talk about uh, those sort of operations that you did in Oman with the, the Sultan? Yeah. Well, after um, San Diego, I was headhunted to set up a countrywide aeromedical program in the Sultanate of Oman. It was it was pretty much a British enclave. And uh, the Sultan was educated in Sandhurst in Britain, and he actually served in the British military. He liked the Brits, and, and so he mainly the people that worked in this country were British. And, and so when I went through the Bell 222 flight simulator, 
when I was in San Diego, I met a British pilot named David Sutcliffe and, and, um, and he, he's actually the guy that got me the job in Oman. I had to fly to Royal Albert Hall in, in England and, and do a, um, and the, um, uh, interview there. They, at the, at the Royal Mount Police, they had six Bell 214 STs, and they were 20-place helicopters with the GE 750 engines in it like they have in the Black Hawk. Pretty much it's a, the engines they have in the Black Hawk now are the derivative of that engine. And we did we did just about everything you, you could think of with, with that aircraft. We, we did winching onto boats, you know, uh, repeater site maintenance up at 10,000 feet. We had a mountains outside of Muscat, which is the capital of the 10,000 feet. Um, we moved generators around, you know, for the, um, for the Marine side, you know, to, they'd have generators for these lighthouses, uh, right on the Strait of Hormuz and, and along the coast. Uh, we move school kids around. We, we do VIP transport. And the main job that we seemed to do with it was to follow the Sultan around when he was going from place to place with a, we had a $1 million air medical EMS kit in it. And if anything happened, we were to land and, and put him on the helicopter or anybody in the convoy. We had like 400, 400 vehicles in a convoy where wow. he went somewhere. And so if anybody, um, for example, at one point, one of the, one of the, um, uh, military vehicles flipped, and so we had six guys that were injured, and we put them on our helicopter and took them to this one to uh, to the hospital there. So, um, just about anything you could do with a helicopter, we did with that. And we also had six Bell 205s, the Augusta Bell 205. So I got to fly the Huey again when I thought I'd never, I never thought I'd never fly it again after Vietnam, but I got to fly it there. And when I was with uh, uh, in Oman, I, I became a typewriting instructor and typewriting examiner in both aircraft. So that was that was pretty fun, uh, being able to stay uh, current and up to date on the aircraft. I pretty much had to because I was you know, training in it. Yeah, no, that would have been great fun going, you know, back and flying. You know, I guess that original mm. one where you, where you cut your teeth uh, and those sorts of things. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that, that uh, the two fourteen, like it just looks like a designer sat down and basically got as much out of the, the Huey kind of basic design and shape as he possibly could, and that's about as big as you could get it. Yeah, you're exactly right, and it, it could. It was they took a good design and they just stretched it out, and they had. Um, have you ever heard of a nodal beam? It's a. They they've had it on several several air, of the Bell aircraft, and what it does if if. Here's the best way to think of it. And imagine holding a fishing pole, a very flexible fishing pole, in, in the very middle of it. And if you move it up and down, um, you move it up and down. There are two points on either side of the right, but before you hit the ends, that don't move. Yep. You know that they don't move, and those are called the nodes. And and so what they did is they attached the transmission onto that onto the parts of the nodal beam where the nodes are that don't move up and down. And rather than having it like a fishing pole that would stick out, you know, from the airframe, they, they fold it in on itself. Uh, so that bit goes up and down uh, inside the, um, you know, under the cowling. And so uh, what they've done is because they can't take the vibration out of the helicopter, they can mask it with the nodal beam. Yeah, move it around. It's a pretty, pretty good system actually and and we had a 
uh, a way to trim. We can trim the track of the blades too, which would change during the, the summer months to the winter months, you know, with the difference in temperature. So we could actually trim one of the blades so that it would fly in track with the other blades and, and, and smooth it out pretty good. Okay, fair enough. All right, Randy, mm-hmm. well, I've got all these other things to ask you about, but we actually better get into the uh, into the CRM side of things. Uh, so, okay. yeah, w- when you sit down, you know, obviously, you know, you run train-the-trainer courses and you, you run CRM courses, but what when you sit down with people and talk about CRM for the first time or for refreshers, what are the the sort of the, the main nuggets that you would condense out? You say, you know, if you get these things under control, you're going to get rid of, you know, 80% of the mistakes. Well, what I usually do is I, I ask, I'll ask somebody in the, in the group, what is their definition of safety? What's it mean to be safe? So, and to, and to do that, I ask somebody if they have a five-year-old, either a granddaughter or grandson or, or a son and daughter or niece and nephew. And, and I say, okay, they come up to you. And it's usually somebody raises their hand. I say, what's their name? Okay, they're Jimmy. So Jimmy comes up to you and says, Dad, in, um, in kindergarten today, my teacher said we need to be safe. But I don't know what does that, what does that mean to be safe? And it sounds, like a, it sounds like a simple question, but it's really, sometimes I go for quite a long time before I actually get somebody with the right answer. And the answer I'm looking for and they usually, sometimes they get it, sometimes they work around it, you know, but it's, it's, it's being safe is knowing what can hurt you and avoid doing it. Yeah. Like don't go in the street, you know, don't touch the hot stove. Don't put your finger in a, a socket on the, in, in the house. So that's what CRM is. It's, it's the knowing what the human factors are that can hurt you. And then with your antenna up, that's being, I ask them, what's the opposite of complacency? And they say, I don't know. Usually they get it. And they say, vigilance. Absolutely right. Vigilance. It's having your antenna up. And you're, you're looking to break a link in the error chain. And are you familiar with an error chain? Yep. The error chain that. concept? Yep. And okay. Swiss, Swiss so, chains and error, error chains? Yeah. Um, so if they can identify a either one of the nine hazardous attitudes or 11 links in the error chains forming, I call them the 20 CRM diamonds, then they can identify it and communicate it and break the link and everybody goes home. And uh, one NASA study of uh, airline accidents and aviation accidents, I tell, I tell the folks to keep these numbers in mind. Four, seven, 84, and 94. And f- the number four is statistically the number of links in an error chain minimum. And then I ask, what does that mean? What are the what what does that mean that number four and then somebody usually said well that's four opportunities and that's exactly right so if you can identify a link in an error chain forming or one of the hazardous attitudes you can break a link in the error chain the number seven is the average number of links in the error chain so there's seven opportunities now eighty four the number eighty four 
The International Helicopter Safety Team last year did a 10-year study. They've been trying to reduce the accident rate by 20%, and they, and they haven't, haven't done it. But, eight, but they found in the accidents that they studied, 84% had an element of human error. So if you can identify the human error before it happens, that something's happening, you break a link and everybody goes home. You can lower the accident rate. And the number 94, because I said, remember these numbers, 4, 7, 84, 94, 94%. A fellow named Dr. Ira Blumen did an Opportunities for Safety Improvement study. And he took 40 aeromedical professionals to include flight docs, uh, program directors, flight nurses, flight paramedics, dispatchers, uh, engineers, mechanics. And uh, they studied um, accidents that, uh, that had occurred, aeromedical accidents that had occurred over a 10-year period. And of those accidents, the element of human factors, I should say the human factor element was 94%. So whenever you heard of an in, in that time frame of an air medical accident, you could bet 94% of the time there was an element of human error there that had it been caught, that everybody would have gone home safely. Sure. So that's yeah. why it's so doggone important. And that's why I quit my job at Abu Dhabi Aviation where I was training and examining over 160 airline transport pilots in the flight simulator in Dubai for Abu Dhabi Aviation. I quit the job there to come back to America to try to teach and facilitate CRM in the way that I was trained. And I was trained over in Europe, where you actually have to have a certification to teach and facilitate CRM, where in the States, there's nothing like that. That's why I built my train the trainer course, because there's, there isn't one. And I trained, and I did it based on the EASA, European Aviation Safety Agency yep. model, because it's the gold standard. So that, I don't know, that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. No, that's perfect. So can we, you know, dive in, I guess, those first thing, the, the different mindsets um, you spoke about. What, you mean the hazardous attitudes? Yeah, sorry, the hazardous attitudes, yeah. Okay, yep. Um, the nine hazardous attitudes, and these are nothing clever on, on my part. These are observed by NASA as well as the 11 clues in the error chain. They're, they're attitudes and clues uh, studied by NASA, aviation universities worldwide that study human factors and uh, the airlines. So what's the first one? Anti-authority. You know, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. So anti-authority. And then the second one is, hold on, uh, fixation or preoccupation. Uh, there's something called the uh, situational awareness paradox, where the small stuff will get you in bigger trouble than the big stuff. Uh, NASA actually calls them light bulb emergencies, like if the landing gear indication didn't come on. They've had several airliners crash because the whole crew became fixated on a burnt-out light bulb and nobody was flying the aircraft, or they ran out of gas. Yep. Okay? So then... now, with each of these, I've seen, it must be a picture somewhere too, but you have like the, the the title and then the mindset. And then I thought what was really good was the antidote. So you have like a phrase that someone would have, you know, like the, you know, don't tell me what to do. But then you'd have like right. an, an antidote phrase. And I don't know if that comes from, you know, CBT, like cognitive behavior therapy or things like that. But I found that really useful for the couple of examples there that quite often when you talk about, 
you know, get home-itis and, you know, all those different things that, that lead to thinking about and the pressure of continuing and, and lead to an accident. But very rarely sometimes do we actually give the the antidote phrase or the opposite phrase. It's sort of – because when you, when you read that phrase, it then instantaneously puts your mind in a different sort of thought pattern. So for right. each, each of these, I don't know if you've got them there, but if you could talk about how you came up with that sort of – you know, antidote idea and, and, and how that works for each well, other. Well, it's something that it, 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 in my training that I, I went, when I went through the airline training, uh, I wasn't an airline pilot, but I went through the training in Cheshire, England that has been teaching 500 different airlines and military worldwide uh, how, uh, how, how to be an, a CRM instructor. So these came from the airline. And you're absolutely right. There is an antidote. Like any authority, don't tell me what to do the antidote is follow the rules. Uh, they've been developed over the benefit of years of experience. And then the uh, second one is impulsive attitude, doing something quickly. Boy, the amount of times I've seen somebody get in trouble in a flight simulator or even in the aircraft when there's been a minor uh, malfunction and they try to get it done quickly. There's a saying called Captain Reach for Your Hat or Captain Wind Your Watch. If something goes on and it's something not catastrophic that, that can take time to think about it, sort of imagine you're reaching behind your seat, putting your captain's hat, hat on, and then you deal with it. Or imagine winding your watch. It's rebooting without doing something without thinking. The other one I've heard there is people say, uh, sit on your hands. So just for that, you know, as long as it's yeah. obviously not a critical thing, that you you know, basically just put your hands underneath your legs on the seat for a moment, and that just mm-hmm. forces you to, to not reach out and start flicking the switches. Yeah, that's it's, it's the same same concept. So the antidote for that is to step back, slow down, and give it some thought. And the third one is invulnerability, complacency, and denial. Like it can't happen to me. And to me, that's like one of the worst of the hazardous attitudes because nobody think thinks it can happen to them. And the antidote, a- antidote is uh, make no mistake, it could happen to you. Uh, the fourth hazardous attitude is macho, can-do attitude, like Maverick and Top Gun you know, taking risks to prove themselves to impress others and, and don't take unnecessary risks. And many times it's sort of a personality flaw where the person has something to prove for some reason. Like Maverick, he was trying to sort of prove himself to the ghost of his father. So don't, don't take unnecessary risk. You know, I always, the, the more, the more years I, I had under my belt in my, in my career, it flew over 13,000 flight hours. Uh, the more conservative I got, I had nothing to prove. And I would hold back at least, you know, 20% of, 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 of probably my, my potential so that, you know, I could dip into it if I needed to, but hopefully I wouldn't have to. Would you, would okay, you say so, with the experience comes more context? Because quite often, you know, early on, or there's a pressure to, you know, with the tourism job or to go rescue the person on a flight and things like that, that you kind of think that's the goal. Whereas as you've had a bit more exposure to management and experience, things like that, you kind of realize actually the goal is not that one flight. The the, the mission or the goal is, is you know, to be there and, and be doing this flight for the next week, the next month, you know, in, in several years. Yeah, time. that's right. And and you can easily get, I, I almost killed this on a, about my third flight at Herman Hospital because I was trying to prove myself. I had macho attitude, invulnerability, get their itis. We were flying on a 
a flight to pick up a five-year-old uh, little girl that had been beaten unconscious by her stepfather. And uh, I was trying to show the medical crew that I had the right stuff, that I could, I could uh, fit in uh, with the other medical pilots that I had, I had what it took. And I went to Inverton IMC at night in this one small, over this one small road going to Bryan, Texas. And uh, it was everything I could do to, to, to do a 180 degree turn. We were at 700 feet, went into the clouds, rising terrain. And uh, it was everything I could do to turn around and get us. We broke out of the clouds about 450 feet. I, it just it was like being kicked in the stomach. I thought, how could this happen to me, you know, with my background? And uh, it really was a humbling experience. And so I, I, I really pulled back after that, you know, not, you know, the, the, it's like you said, the, what was important is to fly another day, you know, and do another mission. So macho can do attitude. And usually in any situation, what I usually do is I, I have a clips about four minute clips uh, that I can, I found on the um, internet. It's um, there are about 40, 40 of them. Uh, and from the um, center for air medical transport research. And uh, there are people that have had close calls in the air medical industry here in America. And they, they tell their story. They go to Denver where they, where they have a, um, a three day uh, intense three day. Uh, what do I say? It's like a, get together and then you put together these clips specific clips for what happened to you and there's usually about five of you and then you show them that they to each other at the end of five days and mine is entitled the wrong stuff and i talk about almost killing us going to uh, Bryan, texas in houston on my third flight there so and 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 what i uh demonstrated you know with press on itis uh anchoring bias anyway I'll get through these hazardous <laughs> attitudes now. Yep. Okay, the fifth one is resignation. What's the use? You know, nothing I do makes any difference. And the antidote for that is remind yourself it's not what luck does to you that matters; it's what you do in spite of luck. It's like a, it's like a test pilot. You know, you fly the jet all the way to either way you have to punch out or you, you know, uh, you just keep flying it. You don't give up. The sixth hazardous attitude or one, two, three, four, five, six is not being willing to challenge the experts. You know, maybe you've been in a situation where you're new to an organization or, or, or you think that somebody has been around long enough to where, how can they make a mistake? But it doesn't feel right to you, but you don't say anything. You don't advocate your position, but realize that, that there was a fellow from Helly Holland that, that uh, sent me a, a blurb on my Facebook page, which is all towards CRM stuff. He said, Randy, if it's important enough to think about, it's important enough to say. And so I thought that was a really good thing to remember. So if, you know, speak up, even if you think somebody's an expert, they could be making uh, a mistake. I, I would fly with relatively young pilots. I'd given them an airline transport pilot. And in my, in my uh, last part of my briefing before we left to do the the flying that day, as I say, okay, now who's the most dangerous person in this cockpit? And of course they sort of raise their hand and they say, I am. I said, no, I am because you don't think I'm going to make a mistake. And so your job is to keep an eye on me because I promise you, I will make a mistake and it's up to you to catch me on it. So another one, number seven, press on itis. That's a killer. You know, 
overriding need to get to the destination at any cost. That's what almost killed me trying to get to that five-year-old little girl that had been um, beaten unconscious. And the antidote there is better late than never. Uh, there's another one here, risky shift. And research has shown that groups make riskier decisions than an individual on their own. The antidote is the first stage to overcoming this hazardous behavior is to recognize it in yourself and others. In other words, if you've ever been, my, my story is usually um, as a kid, you know, we were used to sell firecrackers on people's front doorsteps and how cool that was, you know. But um, you probably wouldn't do it by yourself. But it, when you're in a group, you think it's cool and you go along with it. So just realize that uh, groups, they have sort of a synergistic effect on making a decision. It can be a good one. But if you have that niggling thought in your head to say, you know, if I was by myself, I wouldn't make the decision. I wouldn't do this. Then bring it up. Advocate your position because it could break a link in the chain. Sure. Um, number eight, anchoring bias. That's a decision based on initial parameter, memory or experience. A uh, good example there, there was a, um, a Marine crew uh, that were flying a uh, equivalent of a, a Bell 412. And this aircraft had a, a history of the oil pressure gauge fluctuating and going to zero, but it was just a gauge. So they were on a mission in 29 Palms, California, and uh, they saw their oil pressure gauge flicker and go to zero. And they thought, well, they're anchored to this, they're wedded to the thought that this is just a, a gauge problem. Well, it wasn't. And they overflew two aircraft, uh, two uh, airports. Uh, for another 15 minutes, didn't land to check out to see if they had any oil in their transmission. And their rotor, uh, their transmission seized at five, 400 feet and um, 250 yards from the landing pad, and they were both killed. So that's anchoring bias. So the antidote is while the past may be relevant, the environment may offer other pertinent clues to the future. So in other words, you break the link in, that, in this case, in that story I, I told you, land the aircrafts, see if it's a gauge problem or if it is a, an actual problem with oil pressure, and then you break the link. So that's the nine hazardous attitudes. And the key points is don't assume you don't have time because consultation or changing your mind or not doing anything may be the right decision. So those are the nine hazardous attitudes. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so now the error chain. And these are, these are all, this is from studies from NASA. Like I said, NASA and the airlines and the universities. The first one is ambiguity. And ambiguity are two more independent sources of information don't agree, like instrument gauges, people, senses, and controls. So it could be people. If independent sources of information don't agree, resolve it. Yeah, maybe maybe you're making a right turn. Your mag compass is your wet compass is showing a turn, but your directional gyro is not showing a turn. Something's going on, or you're turning. There was a crash in Stansted, England, where the captain turned, and his attitude indicator wasn't showing a turn, and he just kept turning, and you know went 90 degrees and crashed about a minute and a half after takeoff. And his co-pilot, it was a Korean air flight. And they've got a real cultural problem with the co-pilot speaking up, you know, especially if the, you know, if it's a um, somebody of lesser rank. And they just go back, you know, hundreds of years where, you know, even what 
what tribe you come from and you know in, in what type of status you have in the society and that co-pilot he didn't say one word all the way to the crash site and, and he could see it happening there. yeah okay so the second one is fixation or preoccupation this is another one of those you know like the flight crew preoccupied with a burnout light bulb when they when they um, put the landing gear down and let's say the nose gear doesn't come on. So this is focusing your attention on any one item or event to the exclusion of all others. It's also a result, can be a result of high workload, personal problems, inattention, complacency, fatigue, fixation. So all these things I'm bringing up, that if you can have your antenna up, which I call being vigilant, uh, and you can see it's happening, stop, break a link. Everybody goes home. Number three, confusion, a sense of uncertainty or anxiety or bafflement about a situation. Psychological, uh, physiological symptoms like an upset stomach, throbbing temple, headache, or nervous habit. Something doesn't feel right. This is, this is you might say, uh, trusting your gut. Figure out what is causing the anxiety, what's causing the confusion, and resolve it. Number four, no one flying the aircraft. We've heard this one before. You know, well, in Abu Dhabi Aviation, we got uh, 12 AW139s. When I was hired at Abu Dhabi Aviation, they weren't hiring anybody with less than 10,000 hours. So we've got two people that are going through the transition into the aircraft and high-time pilots. But the hardest part of the transition was the flight management system, you know, the, 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 the flight computer. Yep. And so... You know, it, it took them at least two or 300 hours before they became comfortable with using that. But what, where do you think both sets of eyes were when they were programming it? Yeah, both looking in. Yeah, so nobody was flying the aircraft. It was a common statement, common problem. Okay, number five, no one looking out the window. Mid-air collision uh, in a terminal uh, area can be a hazard. You know, don't keep your head down in the cockpit. This goes along with no one flying the aircraft. Use of undocumented procedure. You know, it's the old thing like, hold my beer and watch this. Yeah. <laughs> Using unorthodox procedures to deal with abnormal or emergency conditions. There was, a, um, there was a crash here, I can't remember how many years ago. It was a real bad snowstorm in Washington. And uh, the guys took off in a 737 in a snowstorm and uh, crashed in the, in the Potomac River. It, it really made the news here. You could see people swimming uh, in the in the river, they're trying to do a helicopter rescue, and the person grabs a ring, and they they fall off. And this guy, this one guy, in the standing side of the river, hopped in and and uh, and rescued this one flight attendant. He became a hero. Anyway, uh, one of the there were a lot of links in that air chain, but one of them was they um, they they came to the uh, they they were loading up on ice, and. The captain said to the um, pilot not flying, he said, I know how to, to blow some of this ice off the uh, wings um, while we're waiting in the lineup. I'll just taxi closer to that DC-9 in front of us, and, and the engines will, you know, the exhaust will, will do yeah, it. Yeah, melts it off. Well, that just did nothing more than load more ice up on it once they got away from those engines. So it's, just realize, if you're doing something that's not in the uh, checklist or in the flight manual, realize that it's undocumented. Think it through. What are the actions or my inactions going to do here? You know, is this something? Is it is the risk worth the is the risk worth the reward? And the answer is no. You don't do it. 
Number seven, violating limitations or minimum operating standards. That's the intent to violate or actual violation of defined minima operating conditions or specifications as described by the reg, flight operations manuals or directives. And I, I usually ask the folks in the audience, I said, what are regulations written in? Yeah, it's only, only blood. Yeah. What, what yeah, I found, though, so, from dealing, because I was in a, in a, a semi-regulatory uh, position in the Australian Army and, and then reading, you know, whether it's CASA or FAA regs, is mm-hmm. the way we, way we document some of those restrictions doesn't allow for the capture of the stories behind it because you can basically pick mm-hmm. up a document that says, you know, this is the, the way you do it and here's the minimum number. Um, but mm-hmm. if, you, if you read that in isolation, it's often, oh, okay, f- fair enough, someone's made that, that line, but it's very hard to open up a, a book or of regulations and, and trace back the stories that have led to that particular uh, paragraph or line appearing in the regulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the uh, great opportunity to go through the American Airlines Training Academy at the at the Human Factors thing, and they used to preach: if you don't violate an SOP, you probably won't get hurt. So you know, don't don't do it. Okay, number eight: unresolved discrepancies, and that's failure to resolve conflicts of opinion, information, or changes in condition. So I like conflicts of opinion because uh, you know if there's a conflict of opinion, so investigate it until you come up with a, a satisfactory answer that you're, that you're both happy with or the group's happy with. But if it's unresolved, it could be a link in an error chain forming. Number nine, failure to meet targets. And this is like failure of the flight crew to uh, attain or maintain identified targets like ETAs, airspeeds, approach minima, altitudes, and headings. This is pretty much to do with like instrument flying or uh, with a fixed wing where you have an um, uh, unstabilized approach where you, you're, I think it's in the fixed wing at 1000 feet. If you're not in a, a, a position, you know, if, to be on the glide slope and, or, and, or close to the center line, uh, if your airspeeds aren't right, if some, something isn't the way it should be, you go around, you break a link, uh, you're, you're not meeting the targets. And this could be like me trying to get to the hospital to pick up this kid no matter what, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm feeling that I'm not going to meet the target. I should say, is this demonstrating a hazardous behavior? If the answer is yes, then I break a link in the chain and I turn around and go home. Number 10, departure from SOPs. Intent to depart or inadvertent departure from prescribed standard operating procedures. Like the airlines say, you know, if, if you're going to break a... Um, uh, go against the SOP. You've got to think about what the risk versus reward is. You know, the, the SOPs are written with the synergistic approach of sitting people sitting around trying to figure out the best and safest way to do something. And so you shouldn't have to sit there on the fly to figure out, you know, how am I going to do this? Especially if there's something in the SOP. Well, sometimes, sometimes do things do happen like what happened in, um, I think it was Salt Lake City with the L-1011. It was a famous crash where the, the the tail engine blew up and took out all the hydraulics. And I mean, there was nothing in the SOPs on how to control that aircraft. They had to do it with differential thrust with the throttles. And that, that was a classic example of good crew resource management because they just all put their heads together to figure out how we're going to get this aircraft on the ground. Yeah. But realize if you break an SOP, you could be putting yourself at risk. 
And the last one on the error chain is incomplete communications. This results from withheld information, ideas, opinions, suggestions or questions, and failure to seek resolution of misunderstandings, confusion, or disagreements. So, one of my favorites is uh, there was a Peter Sellers movie where he plays this bumbling French inspector, Inspector Clouseau, and he walks into this inn and he sees a dog and he asks the innkeeper, he says, does your dog bite? No. So he reaches over and he pats the dog and the dog bites him. He said, I thought you said your dog doesn't bite. He said, that's not my dog. (laughs) (laughs) So it's incomplete communications. That's why if it's important enough to think about, it's important enough to say. If you're uncomfortable, one of the big tenets of crew resource management is advocacy. Advocating your right to speak up and you have the right to expect that you'll have it resolved and uh, other, other folks will listen to you without chastising you and until everybody's happy with the answer that you come up with. So those are the 11 links in the error chain may be forming. Ambiguity, fixation or preoccupation, confusion, no one's flying the aircraft, no one, looking, no one looking out the window, use of undocumented procedures, violating limitations or minimum operating standards, unresolved discrepancies, failure to meet targets, departure from SOPs, and incomplete communication. And I'm just seeing of different accents, you know, pretty much most of the accents are going to fall into, you know, one either those mindsets or those uh, mm-hmm. links and chain you're speaking mm-hmm. about. So, and I know we've, you know, we've touched that at a very, very shallow level because obviously for each one of those, you could then, you know, spend an hour diving into yeah. uh, detail on those. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Look, thank you. <laughs> It'd be a, you know a great refresher for people, and, and also I guess point them in the direction in terms of of things to think about. And that on, on its own, you know, is obviously not going to be enough. Uh, people need to you know always be learning about that sort of gear. Can you, Randy, just give a, a couple of places online people can go and you know one find out a bit more about you and about the CRM side of things, and uh, you know and give you just a little bit of detail about the instructor course that you run. Yeah. Um, I've actually had three Australians come over and take it. I had two come from the Melbourne Police Department. They were here last year. And I had another fellow who was used to be with the Oman Royal Flight, and he, he worked for Bristol Helicopter for many years. And he's an ex-Vietnam helicopter pilot, too. And he came over and took the course. And he wanted to go back to Australia and try to talk to CASA and sort of put them on the um, the, the, the line of thinking that it's something that helicopter pilots can use too to save lives. But yeah, websites, if you go to, um, I've got a professional Facebook page and it, and, and you rarely will have, you'll see any personal stuff there. It's all to do with CRM. Just go to Randy Mains on Facebook and ask me, I've, I've got a, let me see, I'm looking at it now. 1,865 people that are on my friends list. Many of them I don't even know. Uh, but they follow me from Australia, Chile. I get people from all over the place that follow me on uh, to, to keep CRM alive in the in the minds of the helicopter pilots. That's what I'm I try to do. So that's Andy Mains on on uh, Facebook, and uh, my instructor website is yeah, it's it's www.randymains CRMI, which means CRMI, you know, crew resource management instructor.com. And just for fun, you can go to my website, randymains.com, and it's got 
might talk about Dear Mom, I'm Alive. My, I've written seven books. Five of them are on CRM and aviation safety. Uh, one of my books was optioned to be a movie, Dear Mom, I'm Alive. It sold about 20,000 copies through Avon Books. And, it, and my books can be ordered at randymains.com. Uh, there's clips there where I talk about uh, the movie. And I mean, I'm going to be dead by the time that thing comes out because the uh, producers trying to find money for it. But we went through the fun, fun process of having to get an entertainment lawyer and doing the literary purchase option, literary purchase agreement and all that stuff. It's pretty exciting, but it sort of slowed down because the producers looking for money. So anyway, Randy Mains or randymains-crmi.com. Okay, you got. I know we had to sort of try and coordinate schedules to to fit this in because you've got a lot of speaking gigs coming up. But where are you talking next? Yeah, um, luckily I'm finishing up the year. I've, I've been. I've actually been too busy <laughs> this year. But I'm speaking at the Air Medical Transport Conference coming up in in Fort Worth, Texas, and I speak on the 16th of October. And I'm speaking about, uh, it's called Rocket Like Sully, uh, CRM Lessons Learned from the Miracle on the Hudson. I'm going to be presenting the group with a decision-making tool that uh, Chesley Sullenberger used. He was a CRM instructor for 14 years before he famously landed on the Hudson. And a good friend of mine whom I flew with in San Diego when we flew single pilot IFR there, he became a human factors teacher for Southwest Airlines. And a fellow named John Ross that worked for U.S. Airways and now works for Southwest has a decision-making tool, uh, ABCD, green, yellow, red, it's called. I'm going to be, my friend who is, um, is working for Southwest sent me, sent me these cards that all Southwest airline pilots carry uh, for decision-making. And he's also sent me a, a short clip that John Ross talks about uh, showing the computer generation flight that Sully had and the decision-making he had at every point where he changed his mind, where he re- reassessed and reevaluated what was going on. And I'm going to be talking the audience right through it. And then showing him two clips uh, taken from the um, Center for Aeromedical Transport Research, uh, clips done by people that have had close calls in, uh, in their aeromedical flying. And I'm going to show how we can apply this risk resource management decision-making tool to their specific situation to have prevented it. And that's going to be on the 16th of October. And then I'm going to Las Vegas uh, on the 25th of October, where on the 26th, I'm speaking at the FAA safety team about crew resource management. And I talk about the 20 CRM diamonds. And then on the 27th, I'm speaking at Heli Success, which is, it'll be the 10th year that the editor of the magazine that I write for, Rotocraft Pro, uh, Lynn Burke, put together this conference for up-and-coming helicopter pilots that want to know what they can do to better their chances to make it in the industry. So there's people my vintage that from oil and gas, aeromedical, ENG, police, fire, and then they, the speakers talk, you know, uh, tours, they speak about what they're looking for in a pilot. And then at the end of the three days, there's a job fair. So they can actually, the kids can actually talk to these guys face to face and, um, and find out, you know, one-on-one what they need. And, and so that the 
you know, the people that do the hiring can actually talk to these folks. It's, it's a one, it's, it's my favorite, it's my wife's and my favorite conference to go to because it's like a Mooney convention. You know, everybody's <laughs> just, you know, you know everybody's yeah. really positive and, and working hard to network to make, make everybody succeed. And I just love it. And my, my uh, talk this year will be, um, Career Survival Tips 101. And um, what, what Lynn wanted me to do is imagine that my son or daughter is going into the industry and what would I tell them to, to, to be safe and to, to get along politically, to, to, to have the best chance to, um, to really further their career. So that, that's what I usually talk about. Well, as a teaser, uh, as a teaser, can you share your, your, your first point? Uh, I, I said, be nice to the people going up because you're going to meet them coming down. <laughs> hey, this is just a, a quick break in the recording just to get some editing in uh, for length as we covered a, a few different things, but I wanted to still include these uh, two snippets. The second one was actually after we'd finished the interview uh, and we're chatting and I had to actually quickly try and press record again to capture it so that I could share it with you. I'm going to show these uh, short clips uh, to these guys that tell me success and say, don't do that. Don't do that. Unless you're an IFR certified aircraft, you're instrument rated, um, current and proficient, proficient, and you can feel safe doing it. Don't do it. Because I've seen really experienced pilots in the flight simulator lose control of the aircraft because they lost spatial orientation. It can happen to anybody. And then I see these kids, you know, GoProing themselves doing this stuff, and it just it just curls my toes. I this year, the Helicopter Association International Heli Expo, to helicopter pilots about CRM. It was the first time anybody's talked about CRM. And I've got these funny antenna. You'll see them on my Facebook page. They look like ladybug antennas. And that being vigilant, and I wore those antennas for the whole hour that I presented to these guys to, to give them the visual of being vigilant and, and looking to break a link in the chain, knowing that you've got at least four opportunities and the average of seven. So if you can think about what you're going to do before you do it and, and say, is the risk versus the reward? If it's not worth it, don't do it. And don't have that sense of invulnerability and the machoism to say, I can do this because you may not be able to, you know, and, and you may take somebody with it. I call it sacred trust. When people fly with you, they are literally saying, I trust you with my life. Your life is in your, my life is in your hands. And so don't violate it. That's that sacred trust. You know, they're giving you the most precious gift that a human being can give another. And that's saying that I trust you with my life. So don't violate the trust. There you go. Look, a lot of ground covered again in this episode. Links that Randy mentioned for his websites are all up on the show notes for this episode on the website, along with some videos and photos if you want to investigate further about Randy or crew resource management in general. You can also find his books online. It really is these sorts of interviews that were the, the whole reason behind starting the podcast in the first place, to you know, capture some of these stories that, from other people's experiences and their mistakes so that we can all get a little bit better at what it is that we do. So a big thanks to Randy Maines for coming on the show. If you've got a, a great suggestion for someone to get on the show and can introduce me 
or you've got some ideas or feedback, uh, you can reach me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. There is also an email list that you can get on if you visit the website rotarywingshow.com and look for the download of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners. I'm reading through a book at the moment called Scram by Harry Benson. It is all about the Sea King and Wessex operations during the Falkland Islands War. The first story is about an SAS mission in whiteout conditions where two of the, the Wessexes in the formation actually hit terrain on the extraction. And I'm hoping we might be able to get Harry on in a future episode to talk about his experience there. As always, a massive, massive thank you to those of you contributing to the show hosting and bandwidth fees through Patreon. You can take a look at that via rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. And that really does help. So thank you. Next time you're on Facebook, do a search for Randy Mains and Rotary Wing Show. You can follow both pages there. And please show the, share the post for this episode if you got some value from it. When you are next up flying with passengers on board, just remember that idea of that, that sacred trust they have placed in you to keep them safe. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>